Well, open your Bibles to the book of Psalms as we continue in our series in this wonderful Psalter and look at this morning Psalm 5. Patricia McCormick in her book, The Plot to Kill Hitler, Bonhoeffer, pastor, spy, unlikely hero, says the following story. It was 1933 in Germany. Adolf Hitler was the newly appointed Führer of Germany and had decided that Christianity, which preached meekness and flabbiness, was not in keeping with the Nazi ideals of ruthlessness and strength. There was too much emphasis on the crucifixion, which was defeatist and depressing. Germans need more positive religion. This new religion that Hitler had in mind would get rid of the Old Testament, which was considered too Jewish, and replace the Bible with his manifesto, Mein Kampf. The national church would take down all the crosses, crucifixes, and images of saints and replace them with the only unconquerable symbol, the swastika. It was then, as this was being announced, an unknown voice, a soft, somewhat high-pitched voice of a theologian came onto the radio and spoke to the people. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a 26-year-old theology student, And Bonhoeffer denounced the idea of a leader who would call themselves Fuhrer. Anyone who claims to have the ultimate supreme leadership, he calls a misleader. And those who give total allegiance to a Fuhrer will in the end be destroyed by him. And then before he could finish, his speech was cut off. The radio went blank and the abrupt eerie silence made listeners wonder, had Hitler and his men cut the power to the microphone, or had Bonhoeffer simply gone overtime in his speech? To this day, no one knows the answer, but the question lingered, what would happen to a person who speaks out against the Fuhrer? Bonhoeffer said that he and his fellow clergymen had a responsibility to question the government when it was wrong. This was a bold statement when Hitler's men were routinely arresting and torturing anyone who spoke against the Fuhrer. He was calling, Bonhoeffer was, on his fellow pastors to stop Hitler in his tracks. And then eventually Bonhoeffer would be convinced to join a group that his brother-in-law was a part of who was plotting to overthrow Hitler and ultimately lead to his assassination. Then he was asked, is it a sin to commit treason? And Bonhoeffer said that he and the other conspirators would indeed be subject to God's judgment for their actions, but he said God would forgive whatever sins we had to undertake to stop a madman. Quote, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Then months later, he would be placed into prison where he stayed for a little while before he was led out by the Nazis and hung by the neck until he died all by the foreign powers that he was called to resist. This is one of the prayers that he prayed from prison. Oh God, early in the morning I cry to you. Help me to pray and to concentrate my thoughts on you. I cannot do this alone. In me there is darkness, but with you there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you there is help. I am restless, but with you there is peace. In me there is bitterness, but with you there is patience. I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. Restore me to liberty. Enable me to live now that I might answer before you and before men. Lord, whatever this day may bring, your name be praised. Amen. 
That is a historical example of when you have a leader in the church who unflinchingly stood up in times of foreign oppression to resist the evil that he saw and to pray for the courage to do that before God. And though Bonhoeffer's allegiance to overthrow Hitler in recent times has been challenged by many different writers, the people who knew him best say that that was the reality he clung to, that he knew the consequences and he was willing to stand up against monsters in treason, even as a believer in Christ. Now, you might be asking yourself, why am I bringing this example to you? And the reason is, this illustration this morning is going to be something, I hope, that helps you see something in Psalm 5 that we're going to call later on in the imprecatory section. A section where King David is so moved by the evil that he sees, he is so overwrought with what what he calls uh, this unrighteousness, that he calls upon God to take action against evil governments that surround Israel. Which, of course, brings many, many things into question, a question that we're going to examine in the time that we have together. But here's the crux of what Psalm 5 is going to tell us. Does evil in the world against the doctrine of God, against the people of God, move your heart? Does the reality of those things existing in the world move you to prayer? Does the injustice of rulers, both foreign and domestic, move your soul to cry out to the king of kings, or are you so distracted by the smaller matters of your life that you rarely pray to the Lord for intervention to take place? In other words, can you say, what matters to God matters to me? So with that in mind, let's read together Psalm 5. And just listen, I should say, as I read Psalm 5. For the choir director, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray, O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, in the abundance of your loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will worship in fear of you. O Yahweh, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the abundance of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous one, O Yahweh. You surround him with favor as with a large shield. What we have here before us, if you were with us last Lord's Day, you know, a study that we've titled, A Morning Plea for the Master's Protection a morning plea for the master's protection, where we saw four aspects of this prayer in David's life to guide us in times of trouble. 
Four elements, if you're taking notes, of godly prayer that we would be wise to remember as we understand the world coming after us. And due to time, we only were able to cover the first two elements of that prayer. So this morning, we're going to return to the study to complete the last two points. And before I do, I'll just do a quick review of what we studied last time to kind of get us up to speed. The first element, if you're taking notes, the first element of godly prayer that we see here, that we would be wise to remember, especially when we see the world coming after us, is number one, a humble appeal for Yahweh's care. A humble appeal for Yahweh's care. And you saw that in verses 1 through 3. Again, he says, Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. So David starts this psalm. He starts the psalm that ultimately is going to be turned into a prayer for the people of God to sing, not just with a shout of of indignation or demand, but rather with a humble appeal for Yahweh's care. And after a pattern for us to consider, a pattern of prayer to call upon God humbly and knowing that he hears us. Now, I mentioned this last time, and it's very, very obvious, I think, that no one cries to someone who is incapable of helping them. No one cries to someone for protection that is unable to do that. And so he cries to God because he knows of the power. He cries to God because deep down inside of his heart, he knows God made him. He knows that God also made his enemies. He also knows that God deals with truth and justice and power on behalf of his children. And then at that point, when that acknowledgement happens to David, he opens his heart humbly before God. He considers himself a child before his great king. And he knows because Yahweh delights in him and that he's crying to him and him alone, the one that can help, the one that can give him the protection he needs. He cries to the one that can care for him. And this is the king who is his God. And I think that statement that I just said in verse 2, my king and my God, is very essential in this whole psalm because, again, the true God, the Yahweh of Scripture, the king is his God. He is ruled by Yahweh. He is ruled by the master of God, of his people. And so it's to this king that the king of Israel prays. And so to this king, he watches, and he watches and waits for his arm to move. The reason that David can do that and the reason that we can do that, you can see, gives us the second aspect of prayer that we talked about last time, the second element of David's prayer, which is number two, not only does he have a humble appeal for Yahweh's care, but we also see he has a confident recognition of Yahweh's character. And this is vital. This is vital. And again, let me read it to you, verses four through seven. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, in the abundance of your loving kindness, I will enter your house. Now look at that again, verse 4. 
Because here's the reason he's going to say, here's the reason why I'm waiting. Here's the reason why I can sit there, even though my heart is burdened and I've been meditating and the meditations now have been given voice and I've cried to you. Why can I wait for you after I've cried for you? Is because he says, you are a God who, and then he lists the things that God's against. He, he knows the kind of God that he worshiped and he starts to compare and contrast this wonderful God against the enemies that he has. This is David's confident recognition of Yahweh's character, which is his greatest strength. This is his greatest hope. And though it's not presented to us here like the Lord's Prayer, what you call the Disciples' Prayer in the New Testament, it is a pattern for us. It is a pattern for us to consider that not only are we now needing his care, but we're confident in his care because of his character. And so we noticed last time the way he expresses this in the psalm is by, again, comparing and contrasting what he knows about God, what he knows to be true, with what he knows about his enemies. And this contrast helps him realize that the Lord stands for everything that they are against. He is against for everything that they are. That Yahweh will not allow his people to undergo the schemes and the wickedness without providing a safeguard for them and be able to help them because of the nature of who God is. This is, this is God's, God's unbelievable character, his perfections that, that make David confident. There's such a confidence here about God's utter holiness. There's such a confidence about his perfections, his attributes, that David can trust even when he seems very far away. He can trust in the God who is his God. Even when there's no evidence of victory before him, he understands that the victor within him is trustworthy through and through. And the reason that David can watch and wait is because he knows God's character intimately. He knows God's character and his perfections in such a way, so personally, that he knows that Yahweh will abhor and call into action all of David's enemies. So that's where we were last week. And what we found by that statement is, what is important for you to notice? What's important for me to notice that God has preserved for us in this prayer that at the core of everything that David writes, the core, which is the truth, the truth of God is at the core of his prayer. No matter how dire the circumstances are, no matter how impending the oncoming storm might be, at the center of everything, at the center of your hope is the character of God. The center of your prayer is not your own misery, but is the greatness of the one to whom you pray. And so this is a deeply settled conviction. That's why it's so important we stay in our Bibles. That's why it's so important that we study the character of God because the deepest conviction of his heart is that God's character is his stronghold, that God's justice is his hope. God's holy character is in direct opposition to everyone who opposes the king. And David knows that very, very well. And this is key. Not only that, but David's contemplation of God's character drives him to reflect on his own character. Did you get that? The more that he focuses on the character and the excellencies and the perfections of God, he starts to dwell on his own particular nuances, his own character. And that's what moves him in verse 7 to say, but as for me, as for me, though I know God hates these things in my enemies." I also know that if it weren't for the Lord's loving kindness, his tender mercy in my life, I would never enter his house. I would never be able to pray this prayer. 
David could not come before the king with any claim of goodness over his enemies because he knows that he too, except for the Lord's mercy and loving kindness, is like them. Do you understand that? You can't raise your prayers to God because of the confidence you have in yourself. You can't raise your prayers up. You can't wake up early in the morning and know and lift up your holy hands and petitions before God because of your excellent character. No, the reason that David can reach out to Yahweh in a time of need is because this covenant-keeping God and king has covered him with this undeserved loyal love. That's the idea. Loyal love. And so now, because of the loyal love of God, because of what he does not deserve, but has been gained because of the character of God, David can pour out his heart knowing that the same perfect character, get this, the same perfect character of God that condemns his enemies is the same perfect character of God that has accepted him by his holy love to allow him to worship in the house of God, where now he can bow before him because of God's faithfulness to him, not because of his faithfulness to God. Before David could cry for help, as he's doing here in Psalm 5, there had to be a time first where he had cried for forgiveness. Do you understand? Before you can go, oh God, please have mercy on me against my enemies, there has to be a time where he's asked for forgiveness of his own sin so this mercy, this loving kindness, this hesed can cover him. Because before that, and we talked about this last time, and I think it's important, there is no hope for us, there's no hope for him, there's no hope for anyone, unless this holy God has alone rescued us and forgiven us and extended his mercy and his loving kindness through faith to us, a faith that can only be granted by God to those who repent of their unbelief and who throw themselves upon the mercy of the great and powerful God. And so that's just a brief reminder, a brief kind of catch-up to where we were last time, and I hope that that helps you kind of set the stage for what we're about to go into. But it's very important that you understand, even in this text, we have not a specific pattern, but we do have a way of looking at approaching the God of our creation in such a way where first we humbly come before him, we, we know and need his care, But as we're about to speak, as we're about to list what we need, before there's any petition in this psalm at all, first and foremost, he lists in his mind knowing what it is that God is against as he sees it in his enemies. So as that brief reminder, now let's go to what the third element, if you're taking notes, the third element of godly character, something that you would be wise and I would be wise to remember when hard things happen. Not only is there a humble appeal for Yahweh's care, not only is there a confident recognition of Yahweh's character, but number three, now we see a somber petition for Yahweh's correction. A humble appeal for his care, a confident recognition of his character, and now a somber petition for Yahweh's correction. And we're going to see that in verses 8 through 10. David continues, O Yahweh, Lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the abundance of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. Now, certainly in this portion of the scripture here, of this psalm, we have what we call a somber petition for Yahweh's correction. 
It's a somber petition for Yahweh's correction. I want you to notice that this correction is not one-sided. This correction is twofold. It's a twofold correction in that, and this is very hard for some people to understand, but it's essential to this section. And I say that because it's here within these verses in Psalm 5 that we are introduced with what theologians call the imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory, meaning psalms that cry out curses. Psalms that cry out judgment on God's enemies. And, and we see this in the beginning of Psalm 5. This is the first time we see it in the Psalter. And we have in this Psalm of King David, David crying out in a loud voice a song that eventually will be sung by all of Israel. And they'll be taught to sing this song as a people about the desire that the godly should have for the enemies of God's people and to have the enemies of God's people be held guilty before God to be allowed to fall under the weight of their own sin and to be allowed to be thrust out for their sin and rebellion. Now, you're going to see as we continue this series for the next few months, years, we're not sure. (laughs) It's all up to John Street. As we continue in our series, you're going to come across this, and you're going to see this happening. And major imprecatory psalms, like Psalm 69, uh, Psalm 109. But there's other psalms, like this one, Psalm 5, that is still considered to be these psalms of cursing, though it's only a minor part of it. It's the first time we see it in the Psalter. Let me give you a better example of what you might understand uh, in Psalm 69. This is a taste of what these kind of psalms are. Psalm 69 says this, speaking of God's enemies, May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes darken so they cannot see. Make their lions quake excuse me, their loins quake continually. Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. If you're turning in your Bibles, go to Psalm 109 where you're going to see much of the same kind of language coming from the heart of one who understands the greatness of God and therefore understands the need for God's enemies to be thwarted. You'll see, when he is judged Let him come forth a wicked man and let his prayer become sin, speaking of the enemies of God, and let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his sons be orphans and his wife a widow. Let his sons wander aimlessly and beg and let them search for food from their ruined homes. Such a strong plea, such an incredible amount of angst in the heart that prays these prayers. Go to Psalm 58. And again, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I think this is one of the most uh, intensified psalms with this. And we're going to refer to it a little later as we unfold this entire message. But you'll see in the last part, verse 6 of Psalm 58, O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Shatter their teeth and break out the fangs of the young lions, O Yahweh. Let them flow away like water that runs off when he aims his arrows. Let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away as as it goes along. Like the miscarriages of a woman which never behold the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the living and burning alike." 
Now, as that's kind of sinking in, I'm sure, if you have never heard of these before, that it starts to dawn on you that this is somewhat shocking. As you might assume, for thousands of years, particularly after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the venom of words like this are hotly debated within the church. How can we, sinners saved by grace, pray for the demise of our enemies? How can a believing man or woman, how can a king or or a pastor like Bonhoeffer, how can they see the evil and then act in such a way of defiance, even though they know that the message of the Son of God spoke of loving our enemies? And I say that because it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself who commanded us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Thank you. That's the the heart of the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us to turn the other cheek, right? It was the Lord Jesus Christ who said to us that we need to go the extra mile. It was he himself who uttered to us that this same threat that had been threatened against him, that he was not returning threat by threat. He wasn't reviling as he was reviled. So why many people have asked, would the same Spirit of God inspired, who inspired the Old Testament, express himself through the words of David in such a seemingly contradictory way as to what the Son of God has said in the New Testament? And those are good questions to ask. But before we answer them, I want to go back to the beginning of this section of Scripture so that you can notice David, before he calls for the correction of his enemies, look at this, he calls for the correction of his own life. Before he calls for the correction of the enemy, he calls for the correction of his own life. That's what I mean by two-sided coin here. Look at verse 8 back in Psalm 5. We read, O Yahweh, lead me. Lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. Do you see, before David can cry out, before David can want the correction of his enemies, he calls out for the Lord to correct himself. He calls out to the Lord saying, make sure that I'm being led in righteousness. Make sure that I'm being led in the straight way. And this is overlooked, but this is so important. I just want you to remember this section has preceded verse 7 that we covered very briefly just a few moments ago where David says, but as for me, as for me, if it weren't for the Lord's tender mercy, if it weren't for Yahweh's loving kindness on my behalf, then I could never ever even enter his house and I could never even pray this prayer. And David didn't see his enemy's sin and terror in a vacuum. It wasn't that he was impervious to that. He didn't disconnect his life from the life of the people around him. He didn't say to the Lord, I'm not boastful like them. I am not worker of iniquity like them. I don't speak falsehood and shed blood and deceive like them. No, instead he saw their sin, and this is imperative, and their lives of sin, and he said, I can only enter your place of worship because of you, not me. I can only enter and long for their demise because of you, not because of me. I can only enter into this place and offer this prayer to you 
because of what you've done, not because of what I've done for you. And so here, that same thought, I think, is now trickled down into this very first petition. This is the first thing that David asked for this entire time. He doesn't ask for anything in verse 1 or 2 or 3, all the way down until verse 8, the first time he mentions in his prayer, which is a really nice reminder of a pattern for prayer for ourselves. The very first petition comes after he has said, God, I humble myself to have your care. God, I humble myself to show that your character is dominant and your ways are right. And then... Now when he comes to correct his enemies, first he corrects and asks for God's correction in his own life. The very first petition is, oh, Yahweh, lead me. Lead me in righteousness. Lead me in righteousness. And he says, because of my foes. I need to be the shepherd king. And I need my shepherd king. And I need to be corrected back to the straight and narrow because of my enemies. I need to be corrected. I need to plead with my God to help me stay on the path of righteousness because, look at verse 9, my enemies have nothing reliable in their mouths. Their inward parts reek of destruction. They speak from the throat, which is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. In other words, my enemies lie. Their hearts are infected with sin. They want to lead me to my own demise, my own death, and to do that with speech, get this, that I am susceptible to. I am susceptible to flattery. I am susceptible to those things that I want to hear. They know how to speak to me. They flatter me. They say what I want to hear to lead me astray. And I know that about myself. I know that I am a man, though I am a king, King David might say, I know that I am a man, so first and foremost, dear God, the shepherd king of my heart, lead me like Psalm 23. Lead me, correct me, keep me on the path of righteousness. Not because I'm righteous, not because I possess this unassailable righteousness in myself, but because I sense that I am susceptible to my foe's persuasions. So keep me on the path. I think this is very instructive especially before we go into the section where David is going to cry out for the correction and punishment of the same enemies that tempt him, first and foremost, to see himself as needing correction, to be sustained, to know what I'm about to ask. How can I ask it if I don't ask it by first examining my own heart and pleading with God to make me the man I should be? to make sure that there's no unclean thing in me, as he says in other psalms. And what's interesting is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the same pastor that was executed for being a part of the conspiracy against Nazi Germany, he once preached from a very similar psalm, uh, Psalm 58, that we read portions of. That's the same psalm that I mentioned earlier when it says, Break the teeth of their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions. O Lord, let them flow as waters run continuously, like a stillborn child of a woman that they may not see the sun. So how does a man like Diedrich Bonhoeffer, very, very likely one who was involved not only in the conspiracy to overthrow Hitler, but possibly in the plot to take his life, how is this man preaching On that kind of passage, one might imagine, he might say justification for everything we should do to Hitler. 
justification for every single thing that he has done against us, we should break his teeth in his mouth. And yet when Bonhoeffer preached this psalm, I think you're going to be surprised at his words. This was July 11th, 1937. Bonhoeffer writes, Is this fearful psalm of vengeance to be our prayer? May we pray in this way? Then he says, Certainly not. We bear much guilt of our own for the action of any enemy who causes us suffering. Even in these times of distress for the church, We must confess that God himself has raised his hand in wrath against us in order to visit our sins upon us. Our spiritual indolence, our open or hidden disobedience, our great lack of discipline in daily living under his word. Or, he says, would we deny that every personal sin, even the most hidden one, must bring down God's wrath upon his congregation? How then should we, who are guilty ourselves and deserving of God's wrath, call down God's vengeance upon our enemies? Will not this vengeance much more strike us? No, we cannot pray this psalm. Not because we are too good for it. What a superficial idea. What colossal pride. But because we're too sinful, too evil for it, end quote. That's his way of saying, and we're going to elaborate on that point. That's his way of saying before I can even think of praying down on my enemies, I must first regard my own humble estate. I have to understand who I am. I have to understand my own sinfulness. So how can I pray against my enemies when evil is in me too? So he feels this tension that David feels. He feels the need to be placed on the straight path. And he doesn't feel as if he can pray against his enemies. But regardless of that, look at what David says back in our text, Psalm 510. He says, hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the abundance of their transgressions, thrust them out. For they are rebellious against you. I pray this prayer because they're they're rebellious against you, O God. I pray this because this is your heart. Your dignity is at stake. I pray this for your people, for your cause on earth. Listen, when Jesus taught us to pray for our enemies and to love them, he's referring to, and you can go back and review the context in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about personal relationships that we have. The the enemies, per se, in our workplace, the, the enemies in our neighborhood, sometimes even the enemy at our kitchen table. But here, David is praying for God's people to hold the enemies of God himself guilty for their own devices and let them fall for what they're doing against the king. God says, as you know very well, vengeance is mine. We know that we pray, yes, Lord, take out your vengeance as you will. Take out your vengeance upon your enemies as you see fit. Jesus himself is quoted with at least two imprecatory psalms, Psalm 35 and Psalm 69. If you go back to John 2, 17 and John 15, 25, you'll see that he alludes to them. The apostle Paul and Peter also quoted from Psalm 69 in Acts 1, 20 and Romans 11, 9. And you know and probably remember when Pastor John was going through the book of Revelation, those martyrs cry out to God with a loud voice saying, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
Revelation 6.10. So these imprecatory psalms, in this case Psalm 5, they're written by a king, the leader of a nation, the general of an army. He's not just representing himself. Although sometimes his prayers may look very personal because they are personal, he's moved to tears, they're not really personal in the sense that represents himself. He represents God. He represents God's desire on earth because when God's people are attacked, God is attacked. God's people need to be protected. And so the imprecatory Psalms focuses on the attention of how evil men have offended a holy God. They call for judgment, not simply because these men have killed uh, innocently. They, they are called down because they have offended a holy one. James E. Adams, not the counselor, uh, James E. Adams, in his book, War Psalms of the Prince of Peace, Lessons from the Imprecatory Psalms, he says this. He says, to pray the imprecatory Psalms is to surrender all rights for vengeance to God. You get that? If I'm going to pray this psalm, yes, there should be hesitation. Yes, I should examine my own life. But when I pray this, I leave the vengeance to him. It means being prepared to suffer and endure without personal revenge or hatred as Christ did. It involves being gentle and loving even when I am reviled and persecuted. It encompasses acknowledging in all my ways that God's cause is more important than I am. There's a missionary family from Ukraine who shared these thoughts about imprecatory prayers. And I thought they were very helpful, very, very timely, since they are at war with a powerful nation. And this is what they said. Before the war started in Ukraine, I also had not much thought about the place of the imprecatory prayers in my own life and my theology. War, however, has a way of shaping your mind and sharpening your calling and making you ask certain questions about certain ideas. War or not, if you read your Bible seriously, you can't ignore the passionate plea for the violent destruction of enemies, end quote. And you know what this family of missionaries in Ukraine are telling us about psalms like this? Psalms like this remind us, do they not, of the awfulness and the terribleness of sin. They remind us that sin is always destruction. Sin always ends in death. They remind us that sin is always against God and that it is often the innocent who suffer because of that sin. They remind us that sin causes all war and is the root of all war. And I think it's important to note that we underestimate sin. I think we do. I think our theology is right. We know depravity. We understand what that means. But when it comes right down to it, we underestimate the consequences of evil. Maybe only in a time of war could we start to grasp it. We underestimate its power to destroy. We underestimate how much it offends a holy God. And that David reminds us of our responsibility to honor God in all circumstances. Look, we're in an individualistic Western culture. It is so easy for us to forget and focus on our own personal responsibility to honor God, and yet we live in nations and cults, and excuse me, uh, societies and cultures where we're called to honor God collectively. Our desire to bring God glory should be set so deep in our hearts that when we see someone not honoring God, it should bother us. 
and it should drive us to pray. And here's another element of this prayer I think that we'd be wise to remember. A last element of godly prayer here that we see in King David as we rush through our text. Not only, again, has there been a humble appeal for Yahweh's care, a confident recognition of Yahweh's character, a somber petition for Yahweh's correction, but lastly, verses 11 through 12, we see a joyful invitation for Yahweh's cover. A joyful invitation for Yahweh's cover. And we see this in verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous one, O Yahweh. You surround him with favor as with a large shield. Now, I want you to think about that. What started as an appeal for care now ends with an invitation for all who love the Lord to have joy. What started with the agonizing experience of, Lord, please hear me. The enemies have surrounded me now ends with, and everyone who's godly rejoice. Joy in the midst of fear. Joy in the midst of uncertainty and joy even as we pray God's will to be done on God's enemies because they know, verse 12, that the same God who extended his loving kindness to them has also shielded them with protection. David speaks of this covering in different ways. He says God is the refuge in which they hide. He says that their shelter, he is the shelter in which they live. He says he surrounds them with a shield. He says a large shield, enough to encompass them all from any kind of harm. And that, dear friend, is a reason to rejoice. Let them sing. Let them sing. You know, something I think about more and more on how, in my own life, about how Monday mornings I've noticed that I go about my day on Monday mornings especially, I'm singing the songs from Sunday worship. I'm not doing it consciously. I'm not doing it even intentionally. I don't even notice it until I notice it. And I, every time I notice it, it just makes me so glad. And, and when we all sing together as one voice, something happens among us that gives expression to the joy that is likened to what I think David's talking about in verse 1, but in a different way. In verse 1, he says, the meditation inside my heart culminates as an expression in one voice to cry out to you. So in the beginning of the prayer, David's private thoughts erupt into words of need, but now he's instructing the people of Yahweh to allow what's true on the inside of you to be expressed outside of you in melody. So how can this happen? How can that take place in the life of a believer? Because it says in verse 11 that we love his name. We love all our God stands for. We exult in who he is and what he's done and what he will do. And again, I tell you, remember at the core of this prayer, at the core of Psalm 5, is this recognition of his holy character, the Lord's holy character. And because of his holy character, we know that those that are lying, those that are wicked, will never triumph. Those who spill innocent blood 
will never triumph over God because of the truth and the truth of God because Yahweh's holy character. He can invite his people to sing because they know they're protected. That's why this psalm is a mourning plea for the master's protection. A mourning plea for the master's protection. So here's a question. Is he your master? Is he your master? Verse 12 says, he blesses the righteous one. He blesses the righteous one. When you read those words, listen, when you read those words, when you hear me say those words, if your thought is, he blesses the righteous one, if your thought is, I'm righteous, then you're wrong. But if you read those words and you think, I'm not righteous, then you're right. The righteousness that David says is the mark of the blessed man or woman is a righteousness that theologians call a foreign righteousness. A foreign righteousness. It doesn't come to them from the inside. Do you understand? It comes to us from the outside. It comes from God. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping king and God that is the object of David's prayer, the one true God, verse 7 says, in the abundance of your loving kindness has covered him with this undeserved loyal love that is a large shield about him. And so now David can pour out his heart knowing that the same perfect character of God that condemns his enemies, as I've said, is the same perfect character of God that's accepted him by his love because of his own faithfulness to himself. This is what David has before us. And, and, what, and when that happens to you, and listen, and we'll be ending here just a little early. And when that happens, the Lord becomes your shield. When you have no longer a righteousness of your own, you no longer believe that you are righteous, but an alien righteousness has come to you and has redeemed your heart and awakened your mind and you see everything through the prism of God's eyes. He lays this large shield over you, large enough to fend off the arrows of the enemy no matter what, even if it comes to death, you are still under his shield because his shield shields you from the second death, from true danger, because you fear him. Benjamin Keach, a 17th century minister, theologian, a man who was maybe unknown to us that much, but in his day, bless you, he was said to introduce congregational <laughs> congregational care. I, I have ears. And um, he wrote a hymn for the church called, The Lord, He is Our Son and Shield. And I want to end with this reminder. He writes, The Lord, He is our Son and Shield, our buckler and our guard. And hence we stand and will not yield, though enemies press hard. Like as a shield, the blow keeps off, the enemy lays on. So he prevents all hurt to us and saves us, everyone. Let foes strike at us as they please upon the head or heart. This precious shield which we do use secures us every part. From sin, from Satan and the world, no art we need to fear. Since thou art such a shield to us, our God and Savior dear. Our shield and our great reward, to thee all praise be given, who with thy saving help afford until we come to heaven. That's the message of David. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for in this psalm seeing an example of a godly man, a leader who understands his necessity to pour out his heart to you for those he loves. For us, it would be for our family. For us, it would be for our church. For us, it would be for our neighbors and those that we know are either against you or who have staked claim that there is no God. But for David, we see that in his appeal, it's not personal, but it is personal. And so he cries out to you for humble care. He acknowledges the wonder of your character and how you are against the enemy of his soul and the souls of your people. And how then, Lord, you open his eyes and his mouth to ask for his own way to be led by righteousness. That his own way has to be led, Lord, because of the abundance of loving kindness you have given him. Father, let this be a reminder to us in the days that we live, especially in the days of such political unrest, days where we could take things so personally for ourselves. Help us to take it personally for you and help our prayers to reflect the prayer of Christ, that we pray like Christ would pray, that we pray that your enemies would be undone and that your kingdom would come. And we ask for your protection as we go through the process of evaluating these things. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.